Sermon Podcast of Piggly Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by the Reverend Dr. William Hess. Good morning. I've been instructed by Jonathan to sort of gather you in when it's, uh, when it's time. It's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, it's been a while, about 12 years since I've been in this building. What a wonderful renovation it's taken place. And I want to thank Jonathan for inviting me to be here and to help in this time of transition a little bit. As he mentioned, the Lord has called me. I failed retirement miserably. Uh, going to churches in really some crisis, and, and God has been good in those. And it's nice to come to a healthy church that's not in crisis, that's in transition, and a place we absolutely love. My wife and I sang in a choir when we were here, and it's just very, very good to be back. And I'm impressed. I'm sitting here praying that when I grow up, I can be like Braden, your, your drummer. Am I got the right name, Braden? Fourth grade. When I was in the fourth grade, they let me use the kazoo, and that's as far as I ever got, never beyond it. You're really blessed. The worship team is wonderful and spirit-filled, and it's good to be here with you today. This is the second Sunday in the season of Lent. Uh, We also have communion, the Lord's table prepared for us, and so I hope the meditation today leads us in the the way that we can truly uh, journey through Lent and feel prepared at the table. The scripture lesson is from the third chapter of Matthew's gospel, beginning with the 13th verse. Listen, that you might hear God speaking to you. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who is your Lord and Savior? Who is your Lord and Savior? Uh, At our First Presbyterian Church, we had a wonderful youth program and a series of delightful youth directors. And uh, one year they did Godspell. I don't know how many of you remember Godspell. Uh, It was written back in 1970, so an old uh, place. But the, the song that our youth learned and led our Lenten services with again and again was prepare you the way of the Lord. And I'm not going to ask you to sing it, but maybe, you know, prepare you the way of the Lord. That phrase comes from a particular person. Prepare you the way of the Lord. John the Baptist. The third chapter of Matthew begins. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It is Lent. Prepare the way of the Lord. Do any of you watch Bob Ross? 
All right, not a lot of hands went up on Bob Ross. We'll just, we'll let that go. <laughs> He's an artist who uses contrast, light and darkness. And to really appreciate the light, you need to have the darkness in the paintings. And, and uh, he's delightful. He's more popular since he's passed away than the, the years, years ago. But his drawings, his landscapes are dynamic because of that contrast. And there's something about Easter that's filled with glorious light. But Lent is something of a contrast so that we can appreciate the beauty of the light. The religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus were corrupt. It was a spiritual swamp. They were self-righteousness. They were self-righteous. And in Jesus' own words, he said that they had turned the Father's house into a den of thieves. All four Gospels concur that the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, even the high priest, They attacked Jesus from day one. And all the way through, they were a source of irritation and aggravation for him, ultimately to the point in which they said, he must die. John the Baptist, in contrast to these religious, self-righteous, holier-than-thou leaders, was out in the wilderness proclaiming the word of the Lord. He was preaching with passion and spirit. And the crowds were gathering around him. And he was calling people to truly repent, to repent from the sins of their life, to give their heart and soul to God. And in the midst of this, he appeared. Jesus appeared. John was reluctant, saying, I I need to be baptized by you. Jesus said, it's so for now. And John consented and baptized him. Jesus was baptized, and when he was, a dove descended. Now, I grew up in a church, a little church in western Pennsylvania, a small church, but on the, uh, behind the chancel there was a stained glass window that had the descending dove. And so as a child growing up in the church, that descending dove always had a certain amount of meaning to, to me, that, that dove. Uh, I think you have one here. Am I right? All right, there's the dove. You know, I, I'll tell you this right now. I've loved every church I've ever been at that has a love somehow prominent in its liturgy. There's something about it. The dove. The dove of peace. The dove of the Spirit. The dove alighted on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And the question I have for you this morning to think about is, why is God pleased? Why is God pleased? Jesus has baptized uh, this bellowing voice, we think, just said, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Why is God pleased? As far as we know, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. No healings, no miracles, no preaching, no teaching. We know nothing. Just think about the fact that 30 years of Jesus' life is a mystery to us. That's amazing, isn't it? The Son of God on earth. We have those birth narratives that we remember at Christmas time. We have him as a 12-year-old coming to the temple in Jerusalem, and he astounds the scholars with his knowledge of the Scriptures. That's it. 30 years of a mostly private life. Now, there are people in history, early church history, that didn't like that. They, they didn't like that we didn't have that. And there are all kinds of writings kind of fill in the gap, those 30-year gap. I spent three years of my life studying with Dr. Bruce Manning Metzger at Princeton. And uh, in getting a second master's degree in New Testament biblical studies, and we read these documents called, and that's a 
wonderful Greek word, pseudepigrapha, which simply means false writings. In my time with Dr. Metzger, he was a, a wonderful scholar of translation of ancient languages, and he loved the Bible. This is a man who just cherished the Bible, said that every word of our Bible that we have in our canon is authentic and reliable, and praise be to God, the early church did a great job in the, the letters that should be in the Bible, but the Bible leaves this gap of 30 years. And the pseudepigraph of false writings filled it in. And if we were in an hour and a half lecture in, in the evening, I could entertain you the whole time with writings from the pseudepigrapha. Uh, ones, I'll tell you one, my favorite, Jesus as a little boy. He's there in Nazareth and it's rained. And uh, Jesus on the Sabbath day goes out and he's playing in the mud like any good little boy would be doing. And he's playing in the mud and he's making birds. He has all these little birds out of the mud all around him. And a rabbi comes and a rabbi scolds him severely for playing on the Sabbath. And Jesus doesn't say a word. He claps his hands three times and the birds fly away. And the text says, the rabbi bothered him no more. I like that story, but it's not true. It's a false story. It's this sense of trying to fill in the gap of 30 years of his life. And often, sometimes, every now and then, you'll hear some sort of strange things coming across the wires of some document they found trying to say that Jesus was married and he had children and et cetera, et cetera. The early church knew these things were false. They were not authentic. They were reliably rejected. We're left with 30 years of Jesus' mystery on earth. And then he appears and he is baptized. So why is God pleased? Why is God pleased? Well, we could argue the theological views of, of the sovereignty of God and the free will of human persons on and on, but I love what one old pastor said years ago. I've never forgotten. He said, you know, God is pleased because Jesus is reporting for duty. Now, I don't have a military background, but I like that phrase. I don't know what options Jesus had uh, from the divine 100% God, 100% human being, but on the human being side, I'd like to think that he has the opportunity to make choices. And on this day, this moment, with John the Baptist, he is saying, here I am. I know my mission. I know what's expected of me. I know what's out there. And here I am. I'm reporting for duty. And God is pleased. God is very pleased. Those are the moments as a pastor. I love in the scriptures when we see people, regular people, just coming to a moment when they report for duty. It's Isaiah in that powerful moment when he says, here I am, send me. It's that moment. This, by the way, is Women's History Month. Uh, start with Mary. She's a good person of history to start with. When Mary says to Gabriel, let it be to me according to your word. That's Isaiah and that's Mary and Jesus all reporting for duty. And if there's ever a power of the Holy Spirit in one's life, as a pastor through the years, it's when someone is convicted by the Spirit and says, okay, I've been sort of off to the side. I've had my private life. But I feel now it's time to report for duty. And when you feel that way, you pick up your phone or your email and you contact Jonathan and say, hey, Jonathan, it's time for me to report for duty. I wonder if there's anybody here today that feels like this might be that time, that moment, to report for duty. Report for duty.
Well, this is Jesus reporting for Duvi. His private life is over, and now his public life begins. And it's an incredible wild ride. Immediately he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And then he's in Galilee preaching and teaching and healing. And then he's on to Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem to Gethsemane and Calvary and on into heaven. It's an incredible ride. Have you ever picked up a book and you just read through it, you couldn't put it down? I don't know how many of you are readers, but have you ever had a book that you said, I just got to finish this thing? Well, I'm in a pastor's reading group this last month. Uh, we had such a book. It's not a religious book it's, uh, at all. It's not, we read a lot of heavy-duty stuff. Next month, it's Brueggemann on Palestinian-Israeli conflict. But last month, it was Let's Read One for Fun, The Maid. Has anybody here read The Maid? The Maid, New York Times bestseller. By the way, I, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but when I would do this at first, people, that was the thing they liked the best. Oh, I'm going to go read that book. Chester County Bookstore used to say, Dr. Hess, would you please call us first before you suggest the book? <laughs> the Maid is a delightful read of a woman on the spectrum. Molly is a maid, and she's on the spectrum, and the author has taught children with special needs, and this character captures your life. And you can't put it down to say, what's happening to Molly? What's going to go on? It's a murder mystery. And I couldn't put the book down, just read right through it. What a great book. When I was in college, and after an experience I'm going to share with you in a little moment, someone gave me a copy of the Good News Bible. And I started with Matthew's Gospel. It was just the New Testament. And I couldn't put it down. And I was raised in the church, grown up in the church, but there was something about that moment, the Holy Spirit, to start in Matthew, and I just couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down, this life of Jesus. Maybe this Lenten season you'll, you'll feel led to do that and to turn to that. I've been a lifelong Presbyterian raised in the church, and without bragging, I would say I was the compliant child. My mother, I did everything to please my mother, never got in trouble, wonderful student, went off to college, 1969, freshman at Penn State. I wasn't there a month, and my roommate and I bought a, a fifth of Bacardi rum, and we drank that whole fifth, the two of us together. And I was sick as a dog. I wrestled in high school at 120-some pounds, so a fifth of Bacardi rum. To this day, the smell of rum makes me a little nauseous. I was sick as a dog, and I was lying in the dormitory floor at Penn State, Beaver Hall. Any of you know Penn State? I'm lying there. I couldn't get up. For two days, I was on the floor, sick as could be. And I heard a voice, as clear as any voice I've ever heard. Who are you going to follow? Follow me. Who are you going to follow? Follow me. Now that was 50-some years ago, not 50, almost 54 years. I'm standing here today because of that voice. We could explain it a thousand one. After all, I was drunk. Hallucinations. Maybe my mother's voice. Who knows what? But I can tell you absolutely that moment, that was Jesus saying to me, Who are you going to follow? And this is the very first point of this question. Who is your Lord and Savior? It was at that moment, I believed in Jesus. I was a wonderful church kid. But I made the commitment, I'm going to follow him. Jesus Christ is my Lord. And I went to the Presbyterian church that I had been attending. Dr. Bill McLean, this wonderful old Scotsman, told him the story. And he didn't blink an eye. He said, Bill, that's wonderful. 
I, I believe what you're saying. Don't change your major yet. <laughs> I was in chemical engineering. Let's wait and see. And, of course, here I am today. Who are you going to follow? Follow me. Uh, baptism is a wonderful thing for us to think about. And in our Presbyterian, my worship book, we ask one question of either parents baptizing a child or an adult being baptized. Who is your Lord and Savior? And it should be the unifying thing for all of us. Who is your Lord and Savior? Protestant, Catholic, uh, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist. I'm really happy to see you're doing a good thing with the Methodists. My wife's a Methodist PK. Wonderful service day. It should unite us. Who is your Lord and Savior? And in that day, who are you going to follow? Follow me. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord to follow him. Uh, as I mentioned, our youth group, I always loved, I love working with youth. It's a way you stay young. But our youth group, the church got this little fad that happened many years ago, and they all came back from a youth retreat wearing these bracelets. And next thing I knew, everyone in the church had these bracelets on. And then I realized that all across the country, people had these bracelets on. The bracelets had just four letters, WWJD. Anyone know what that stands for? What would Jesus do? I think you can answer to yourself, is Jesus my Lord? If in fact the things you do and the things you say are somehow guided by, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Is Jesus your Lord? Every year in, in the fall, and it happens tragically every year, I read of someone who dies by alcohol poisoning, someone binge drinking, and it's not fentanyl, it's not cocaine, it's just Bacardi rum or something like that, and they're gone. And I wonder how close I was. How close I was. But the voice called me. Who are you going to follow? Follow me. And who knows what it is in your life, the journey where you sit on an edge of something, a precipice that could be so dangerous for your life. But I hope you hear the Lord asking you today, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to follow? Follow me. Who is your Lord and Savior? Is Jesus your Savior? We have long lived in an age where the general consensus is, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all basically good. Sometimes we make a few mistakes, uh, uh, some errors in judgment, some temporary forgetfulness. I'm not sure John Calvin's view of total depravity preaches real well these days. Um, sin. Sin. It's Lent. One of America's great preachers was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards preached 1733 to 35 in the Great First Awakening in America. A classic of American literature, you can pull it up and Google it, it'll come right up. His 1741 sermon. I wonder how this would go online these days. Title of his message was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Is Jesus your Savior? It was said that when Jonathan Edwards preached, the people there with their, in the pew had their feet. It said their feet were, and I'm quoting exactly, their feet were dangling over the precipice of hell. Is Jesus your Savior? Are you just a person who's made a few mistakes along the way, an error here, misjudgment? Is Jesus really your Savior? When you think of Jesus giving his life for you, do you think, oh, you know, what's that way to say amen and jazz? Yeah. Yeah, 
Jesus died for me, for me. A pastor friend from Dallas, Texas, Clayton Bell, he he told a story, he was leading an evening program about uh, different things, and he asked the question, he said, what's your favorite time of the year in the church? What do you love the most in the, in the church? And immediately people had the answers, Christmas Eve service, candlelight service, singing silent night. Other people said, no, it's Easter. It's Easter when the choir sings a hallelujah chorus. I get goosebumps, that's the best time of the church year. And he said, one person said, vacation Bible school. And I remember Clayton Bell said, you know, every church needs one person who believes that vacation Bible school is the best time of the year in the church. Just need one person that believes that. And then another lady, rather timid, shy, quiet, she spoke up. She said, Lent. And Dr. Bell, uh, Clayton, by the way, Clayton Bell's sister was Ruth Graham Bell, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth. Uh, Clayton said, Lent, that's interesting. Very few people would say Lent is the best time of the year. And she said, yeah, Lent. Lent is when the church gets real. She said, my dad was an elder in the church, and he abused me terribly. Lent is the time when we realize we're sinners. Lent is when the church gets real. Lent is when we sing that song beneath the cross of Jesus. And we stand beneath the cross of Jesus and we look up at him and we say, God came to earth and this is what we did to him. Is Jesus Christ your savior? Is he your savior? Who is your Lord and savior? The answer is Jesus Christ is my Lord and savior. And as a pastor through the years at those moments of baptism, uh, and we would study it in advance, but when that couple or that individual would say, and I've baptized first persons who are Jewish, baptized persons who are Muslim, baptized persons who are Hindu, baptized persons who had no church background. Some of those adult baptism are so mean. When you say, who is your Lord and Savior? And they say with conviction, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. That's the heart of the church. And I just ask you today, who is your Lord and Savior? And one last story, a uh, favorite one. I don't know whether you've read uh, the many books of Will Willimon. Will Willimon is a United Methodist bishop. He served at Duke University for many, many years as their chaplain. Uh, while a, a chaplain there, he had a lot of fascinating experiences in his life, one of which was counseling for a young student who from his freshman year to his senior year would constantly come in and talk to Will about faith and belief. The young man claimed to be an atheist, an agnostic. Uh, they would argue and debate. And Will said for four years, he did everything he could to witness to this young man, to lead him into faith in Jesus Christ, and to open up the journey of, of, of faith in our Lord. And after four years, it was exasperating. The, the young man just said, I'm an atheist. But he would keep coming back to Will to talk. And they were in their uh, senior year. The young man was ready to go off to graduate school at Harvard. And this was their last chance to meet together. And Will was given sort of everything he could to kind of convince the young man and getting nowhere. And Will said, and I've met Will Willimon. He, he smiled when he said this. He said, you know, I was just exasperated. And I looked at him and I said, you're Arminian, aren't you? And the young man said, yeah, I'm Arminian. He said, I bet your parents baptized you as a, as a kid. Yeah, they baptized me as a kid, but that means nothing. Will said, it means everything. 
God got you. You belong to God. There's nothing you can do about it. You've been baptized. You belong to God. The young man looked at him and said, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. Well, they cordially said goodbye. Nine months later, Will, the conference I was at, Will had the letter in his hand from the young man. Dr. Willimon, I could not forget when you said I belong to God, that I belong to God. I couldn't forget that. I want you to know I'm now involved in a Christian ministry here on campus, and I'm, I'm learning to understand what it means that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. And thank you for telling me I belong to God. Well, when the Presbyterian Church united not so many years ago, the North and the South, we created a new brief statement of faith. I don't know how often you may use it, but it's a wonderful statement of faith. And the phrase I love the most in that statement, it says, in life and in death, we belong to God. Friends, you belong to God. And I pray that in your journey of following the Lord, every step of the way you find a deeper meaning and the fact that this Lord Jesus Christ, he is your Lord, and he is your Savior. Will you pray with me? Loving God, we thank you so much for our baptism. We thank you for the parents or adults who led us to that. We thank you for the Sunday school teachers and the youth leaders and the pastors along the way. We thank you for all who helped to mold us in faith. And if we were baptized as an adult, Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit that moved us to that moment. And together this moment, this very moment, we say, Lord, we're so grateful that you are our Lord and you are our Savior. And help us to grow in that every day, day by day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.